Our first lesson comes from Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, saw the glory of God. And he said, behold, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in loud voices and they stopped their ears and they rushed together against him. Then they threw him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And on that day there arose in Jerusalem a great persecution against the church. And all were scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men came and buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Going from house to house, he was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How does God convert a person to faith? How does God convert a person to faith? Uh, people experience conversion in different ways. Is it a moment? Is it a process? Uh, for, for many, uh, Monica, my wife being one of them, it's a process. There were a number of events that took place uh, in her life, and some of you can track with this, where you can't put your finger on a singular point but somewhere through that process, conversion took place. For others, it's a moment. For others, like myself, you can say there's a particular date. I walked into a gathering of youth when I was 17 years old. I walked in as an ardent atheist. I walked out saying, I think I'm a Christian now. It happened. It was 23 years ago, uh, which seems like a long time. Uh, I was looking at some photos with uh, my family recently uh, around that time when I was a much younger man and um, noticed that I didn't have the beard obviously back then, just a little divot, a little uh, soul patch right here. I was uh, trying to do the whole Stevie Ray Vaughan thing and I had a little soul patch. And uh, so I said to my, my eight-year-old just, just the other day, I said, you know, maybe looking back at this old picture, I look a lot younger. Maybe I should shave the beard and just do the soul patch. To which my eight-year-old responded, uh, you'd look like an old man who's confused and thinks he's a teenager. <laughs> so we're keeping the beard. Is conversion a moment? Is it a process? I think what's important is, is what C.S. Lewis once wrote when he said, conversion is a bit like you're on a train from Paris to Berlin. Some people will be awake at the moment that the train crosses the border and they'll know that exact moment it happened. Other people won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you know that you're in Berlin now. And what matters is that you know you're a Christian now and you can know that. How does God convert a person to faith? 
to look at this question over the next few weeks. We're going to look at probably the greatest conversion story in Scripture. We're going to look at the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, One of the greatest enemies of Christianity who was converted to become one of the greatest missionaries of Christianity. Uh, Paul, in his own words, I think, shows this juxtaposition, knowing from whence he came, what he was converted out of, and what God had made him into. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says these words, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. You see, what Paul understands later in his life, and by the way, next week we'll talk about the whole Saul and Paul name issue, but what Saul of Tarsus would one day come to understand is that the heart of his conversion, and we're going to see this week after week as we walk through this story over the next few weeks, at the heart of Saul's conversion and at the heart of every conversion, we find the mercy of God. At the heart of every conversion, and we see it so much on display here for Saul as a picture for us, we find the mercy of God. You see, conversion is not something we can attain to. It's not something we can do. It's not something we can earn. It is something we receive by God's mercy. I I love mercy as defined in the Oxford English Dictionary. You know those gigantic dictionaries you need a magnifying glass to read? It goes through all the root of the word. Because I think mercy is one of these words that we often forget what it really means in our culture. But mercy, here's what the Oxford English Dictionary says of mercy. I know I've quoted it before. I'll quote it many more times. Mercy is forbearance and compassion shown to a powerless person, especially an offender, or to one with no claim to receive kindness. Kind and compassionate treatment in a case where severity is merited or expected. Kind and compassionate treatment in a case where severity is merited or expected. Next week, when we look at the actual road to Damascus moment where Saul of Tarsus will meet Jesus, we'll see this mercy so clearly on display. But here's what's amazing. As we look at our text today, and if you're with me, we're in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 54. If you will look with me in this text, you'll see what's amazing is that God's mercy is on display, not just on the road to Damascus when he meets Jesus. God's mercy is on display before he meets Jesus. God's mercy is on display in Saul's story before he even meets the Lord. Before his conversion, God's mercy is there. And I want you to see, if you're only going to see one thing in this series, I want you to see this. That mercy, God's mercy, goes before our conversion makes our conversion happen and then sustains us beyond our conversion. The whole story of the Christian life is about us walking and being washed in God's amazing mercy. Before his conversion, we see in our text today that Saul beholds God's mercy. Before his conversion, he beholds, he sees God's mercy. But also before his conversion, 
He is broadcasting God's mercy. We're going to see how Saul already is broadcasting God's mercy even before his conversion. And finally, not only does he behold God's mercy, not only does he broadcast God's mercy, but Saul of Tarsus here before his conversion is beta testing God's mercy. He's beta testing it. I'll explain it what I mean in a moment. But he beta tests it. He tests it. So before his conversion first, Saul beholds God's mercy. Before he meets Jesus, he's already beholding. He's already seeing. He's already being exposed to God's mercy. Because the first time that Saul is mentioned is in the context of the martyrdom of Stephen. See, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, as Stephen's martyrdom, we read these words. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is holding the garments of the witnesses of this execution. And we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But here to begin with, he sees it. He sees and witnesses Stephen's death. And what he witnesses in Stephen's death is he's seeing a picture. He's seeing a reflection of Jesus' death. See, what's incredible in Stephen's death is the way he dies and the way Luke portrays his death is it looks a lot like the way Jesus died. Sure, he wasn't getting crucified. He was getting stoned. And by the way, for anyone in the room who's a relatively new believer, when I was a new believer, I had a hard time understanding what that phrase meant at first. It means rocks. It doesn't mean that Stephen was stoned. Um, Pagan background. I didn't know what that was. I was like, this is a very interesting book. But when Stephen was getting hit with stones, killed with stones, he looked a lot like Jesus. Here's where you see it. Look at verse 56. In verse 56, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is before the council that's trying him before his death. And he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus, his Lord, stood before the Sanhedrin on trial before his execution, Jesus said at verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Okay, similarity, interesting. Jesus quoted the same thing as Stephen. Well, goes on further, verse 59. Stephen says in verse 59, crying out in a loud voice, as he's dying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is dying on the cross, verse 46, he says to his father, into your hands, I commit my spirits. And if you don't think the similarities are convincing you yet, wait until the moment just before he dies. Verse 60, Stephen says, Lord do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, again, Luke 23, as he's dying, verse 34, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, what's incredible is Stephen, in his death, is dying like Christ. He's doing this as a reflection, as a reflection on what he's received from Jesus. You see, in Stephen's death, mercy is on display. A man forgiving those who are murdering him. And isn't it interesting that it says in verse 60, he fell to his knees and said, do not hold this sin against him. His last words were a prayer. He got on his knees in prayer as he's dying and says, 
forgive them. This is mercy that the world does not know. And Saul of Tarsus sees it. He sees this on display. Jesus' own death. And of course, what Stephen is modeling is nothing less than what he's received from Jesus. He knows the mercy that Jesus has poured on him. And so now he desires to be like Christ. That's what Christian means, a little Christ. To be a little Christ in the world, reflecting that mercy. Even an unbeliever like Saul of Tarsus is being exposed to God's mercy. Even while he still is rejecting it, it's being exposed. He's beholding it. He's seeing it. One of the most frequent questions that I often get as a pastor is the question, how do I respond to a hostile and unbelieving loved one? How do I do this? I've got a brother, I've got a sister, I've got a child, I've got a parent, I've got a friend. And not only do they reject Christianity, but they're hostile about it. I get this asked all the time. What do we do? How do we live in response to that? I remember a number of years ago, I was sitting at Trinity School for Ministry in Pennsylvania doing some doctoral work. And we had a visiting, um, a visiting lecturer from Nigeria, Archbishop Ben Kawashi. He's preached here before. Ben Kawashi is the Archbishop of Jos, Nigeria. And this is in a portion of Nigeria that is so overrun with Boko Haram and terrorism. I mean, churches are being bombed out. Christians are dying. The martyrdom of Stephen is not a strange thing for people in Jos, Nigeria. And Ben Kawashi was sitting here lecturing at seminary. Some of you heard this story before. And in the midst of one of his talks, he simply threw out this phrase. It was like a throwaway phrase. And then he just kept speaking. And he said this. He said, our killer's children will become Christians through the testimony of our children. Our killer's children will become Christians by the testimony of our children. And one of us put our hands up and said, Archbishop, could you just stop for a second there? Because in the West, we don't even have a context to understand what you just said. See, he lives in a world where he believes he's going to die for the gospel. So how does he respond to the hostile environment around him? Well, I know that my children have to be raised in the gospel in such a way that their testimony will convict the children of those who kill me. That is how we respond to a hostile world, living with that kind of mercy in our lives, living like Christ in the world, not responding in anger, not responding in resentment, but responding in mercy and love and testimony. As we live like Christ, as we reflect mercy shown to us into an unbelieving, hostile world, the Sauls of Tarsus behold God's mercy even when they're rejecting it. See, even before his conversion, Saul is already beholding the mercy of God. But not only is he beholding the mercy of God, before his conversion, Saul is broadcasting God's mercy. He is sending it out into the world. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You see, as a result of Saul and those who had put Stephen to death, because of this, there was a great fear. It actually got the church fleeing into the world. They fled Jerusalem. It was not safe for them any longer. But you know what's amazing is when they fled, when they scattered, 
they took the gospel with them. Verse 4 of chapter 8 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were scattered and they took the word of God's mercy with them out into the world. Chapter 19, sorry, chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. The point is the church was scattered, and as they scattered, they took the gospel, the gospel of God's mercy, out into the world. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus had predicted, had told them they would do back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before his ascension. He said, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this moment with Stephen's death is very likely about two to three years after the ascension. And so for two or three years, the church has pretty much stayed snug in Jerusalem. It takes Saul of Tarsus and his ravaging of the church. It takes this great persecution to drive the gospel out into the world. Do you see that Saul, even before his conversion, is already the source of sending missionaries into the world and he doesn't even know it? Saul would look back on his ministry down the road years later and say, isn't it amazing as he went out on his first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, Saul would go out and he'd meet Christians and guess what they'd tell him? Oh yes, we remember you. We heard about your incredible conversion, but just so you know, we got to Antioch because we were terrified of you. You drove the church to Antioch. See, even in his rebellion, even in his disobedience, even before his conversion, Saul is already a mission sender. He's sending them into mission. You begin looking at the story thinking, it sounds like God is orchestrating this somehow. I mean, really, there is a God behind this. It's, it's amazing where the mission goes, isn't it? We're shocked that the mission can go so far into every language and culture in our world. I mean, the mission is so strange. You, you can take people from Canada to Texas. I mean, strange places. I got to tell you, after a missionary is in a place for a while, being a missionary from Canada now to Texas, almost two years, coming up on two years, um, what ends up happening is you start, you know, accommodating yourself to that new culture. I mean, Saul of Tarsus will one day say, you know, for the sake of Jews, I can be a Jew. For the sake of Gentiles, I can be a Gentile. And I got to say, uh, for the sake of Texans, I guess I can be a Texan because this week for the first time, I am freezing cold. I was at Costco this week. It's only like, what, 20? This is nothing. I'm used to minus 20. But I'm at Costco and I walk by this, this, this area and I see these beautiful wool coats. And I said, I desperately need a wool coat. And now I'm wearing a wool coat and I feel completely Texan. <laughs> God sends mission from everywhere to everywhere. And Saul becomes a major catalyst in the sending of the church. Even before his conversion, he is already broadcasting God's mercy. He is responsible for getting it out there because of God's grace, because of God's direction, God's sovereignty. Even in his hatred and his persecution, God's mercy is being broadcast by Saul. He's not just beholding the mercy of God before his conversion, but Saul is also broadcasting the mercy of God. But finally, 
not only is he beholding the mercy of God and broadcasting the mercy of God, but before his conversion, Saul is beta testing the mercy of God. He's beta testing it. Now, those of you in the tech world know this much better than I, but a beta testing moment is where you take something and you have to give it to a user group to work through it, to take the device, to take the product and make sure that this works with real users. No more hypothetical, right? No more binary code. This has got to go in the hands of real people. Does this thing work in the real world? See, with Saul of Tarsus, when we look at his life, such an enemy of the gospel, so much sin, so much murderous intent against the church, we see the true beta test. Will God's mercy work in this life too? A real sinner, not a hypothetical sinner, but we mean a real sinner. Does this work in a real life? Does God's mercy really transform real human beings? You see, in verse 58, it says the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, the witnesses at a stoning were those who would throw the person condemned down to the ground and begin throwing the first stones. It was, a, it was an office of the court. Their job was to begin the execution. To hold the coats, the garments of the witnesses was not to be a first century coat rack, but rather most commentators believe it means that Paul was some kind of official in this execution. He was in fact even directing the execution. He was holding the cloaks, the garments of those who were beginning the execution of Stephen. He was in fact responsible or if not totally responsible, at least equally responsible with those who executed this man. And Saul will even say this. Later in his ministry, when he stands before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, and by the way, he's going to come back to this execution of Stephen several times in his teaching and preaching. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, he describes specifically how involved he truly was in this persecution of the church. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted even them to foreign cities. When these Christians were being put to death, Saul of Tarsus admits, I voted death. This man is beta testing God's mercy. We see on display in his life such an enemy of the gospel, such a sinner, such a broken life. Will God's mercy be able to penetrate even this one? Luke is setting us up here to show us just how broken this man was, just how, yes, I'll say it, evil this man was before he comes to that road to Damascus. Can God's mercy even extend to this man? I mean, the beta test, I think, is most on display, and we'll see this in a few weeks, when Ananias, Ananias, the Christian, is called by God after Saul's conversion to go and pray for him for healing. And what does Ananias say to the Lord? Chapter 9, verse 13. Knowing all that the, who this man is. This, is. this is the beta test. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This man, his life is the test of the mercy of God. Can God's mercy truly penetrate a life this far gone? But you know what's interesting? It's just not just Saul of Tarsus. We can miss this if we think, oh, great, Saul is the great beta test. Saul is the great proof that the mercy of God works. No, do you know what? You and I are the beta test as well. It's our own lives, our own brokenness, our own evil intent before God. This is what tests the gospel. This is what tests God's mercy again and again. Can the mercy of God penetrate my brokenness, my sin, my life? And this is what an unbelieving world sees. You know, it's interesting, when you read the Bible, you see all these great heroes of the saints, right? You see, you know, Joshua, and you see, you see Abraham and Moses, and it's easy to kind of get into that hero worship mode of saying, oh, well, they were, they were really wonderful, amazing men of God. They didn't need much help. No, guess what? They were the beta test too. All of these saints of Scripture, all of us were the beta test. All of us are broken. All of us in need of this incredible mercy from God. Will God's mercy penetrate even this life? I mean, like at the beginning of the service, we heard Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua himself, as an incredible war hero, faithful God, faithful before God, this man was a test before God. Would God's mercy work even in this life? And I gotta say, you know, when you start a service like that with Clay singing, I'm sorry, Christchurch, I know we gotta find some good musicians here. <laughs> How does God convert a person to faith? How does God convert a person to faith? Before Saul's conversion, God's mercy was all over his life already. Because that's the very nature of mercy. That which is unearned and even unasked for. God's mercy is already there on his life. You know, almost three decades after this moment, Saul of Tarsus will write to the Ephesians, and he will say these words that I think summarize, as I close, summarize this, this picture of, of what truly God has won for him in his conversion. How much God's mercy was on display even before he met Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Saul of Tarsus writes this. He says of them and truly of himself, and you and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. 
For those of you searching for faith, God's mercy is already there, working in your life, working on your life. For those of you praying for an unbelieving friend or family member, God's mercy is there, working in this world, over their lives. Look at Saul of Tarsus. Before conversion, he beholds God's mercy, he broadcasts God's mercy, and he beta tests God's mercy. This mercy is what converts. This mercy works on the hearts, and this mercy is for you and me and for the whole world. Ananias answered him, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the mercy of God. We are the objects of his mercy. Will we hear, see, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that mercy, that message of mercy today? It is for you, it is for your children, and for all who are afar off. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.